Well, this week, an 81-year-old man died. You may have heard the news. This man's name was Ted Kaczynski. He was known as a Unabomber. He was known as a Unabomber. Well, Ted Kaczynski was a very intelligent man, uh, even as a young man. He was a math prodigy. He was Harvard-trained, uh, Harvard-trained math professor. But uh, he, he had spent, uh, he had been serving eight, consecutive life sentences for sending out mail bombs that killed several people, injured many more, from 1978 until they caught him in 1995. He, he was a recluse. He, he uh, lived out uh, on his own, just living off the land. And it, so it took him a while to, uh, to catch up to him, but they eventually did. And so he was arrested. And he, he wrote a, a manifesto, 30,000-word manifesto, in which he said a lot of things, including he justified his murderous attacks in the name of, he said, preserving humanity and nature, protecting humanity and nature from the onslaught of technology and exploitation. Uh, so he was very much against technology exploiting the land. And so because of that, he said he, he felt he was justified in killing these people. And his journals that they found, he also wrote about how he had a deep hatred for people. A deep hatred for people. Now I mention this story because as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to Jesus' teaching on murder and anger or murder and hatred. So let's go today to Matthew 5, 21. If you would turn in your Bibles, we'll also have the verses up on the screen. Some of you may want to follow on the YouVersion Bible app if you want to have everything in one place. But uh, here's what we read, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is an Aramaic word, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that's pretty powerful, right? Pretty direct. These verses here begin a section which scholars refer to as the six antitheses. The six antitheses. Now this title, uh, the six antitheses, is somewhat misleading because it seems to imply that Jesus is opposed to the Old Testament. He's anti-Old Testament in some way. Well, we read a few weeks ago that Jesus, uh, again in, in this Sermon on the Mount, he, he said that he came to fulfill the law not to abolish the law but he came to fulfill the law so uh, attacking and uh, or opposing the old testament is really not what he's doing it's not the purpose of these teachings in fact if jesus truly was contradicting the old testament like some people think that he was if he really was contradicting the old testament he would have said this he would have said you've heard it said you shall not murder but i say to you Murder. I say to you, kill someone. I say to you, commit murder. 
that would be uh, uh, really an antithesis. So, so really the, the, the saying or the title is a little misleading. But it is true that th these are six antithesis, antitheses in which he says, uh, you have heard it said thus, but I say to you. So he, he has a, an explanation, an interpretation which is different than the interpretation of the Old Testament which the Pharisees and scribes had. He's contradicting not the Old Testament, but the interpretation of the Old Testament by the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's also raising the bar for them. As we're going to see in, in, in this section and the following weeks, he's raising the bar for them. Uh, for example, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, because I think it'll be all of you here, hopefully, but how many of you have never committed a murder of another human being? Well, I mean, we would all raise our hands, right? And, but, frankly, that's a low bar, right? That's a low bar. I, I, most people in this world would raise their hand to that. I've never killed a person. But let me ask you this. How many of you have never been angry at someone else? Can you raise your hand to that? That's a much higher bar, and that's what Jesus did. He raised the bar. Perhaps you've been so angry that you called somebody a name, like idiot or fool, Right? That's a high bar that I'm not sure that any of us can say that we've reached. So Jesus is raising the bar on, on the Pharisees and scribes, on his listeners, and on us today. Because the Pharisees taught that murder consisted of taking someone's life. That was what they taught. That was understanding. But the Lord Jesus said that the commandment not to murder extended not only to the act of taking someone's life, but also to the internal attitude behind that act. Of course murder is wrong. But the anger that prompts that murder, Jesus is saying, is just as wrong as plunging the knife into the person, or, or in today's contemporary society, killing them with a gun. The, the attitude, the anger behind the murder is just as wrong, even if the murder is not itself committed. So what he's saying is, look, becoming angry at your fellow brother or sister, your fellow uh, disciple, becoming angry at them and, and assuming a position of superiority over them by calling them a name like uh, Raka or Fool, or idiot, that demonstrates sin in your heart. That demonstrates sinfulness of the heart. And that's what we do when we, when we, come, we become angry, uh, indignant at, at certain people without cause, uh, or you know, we think we have a reason, we call them a name, then we are assuming a position of being over them, of being superior to them, and that demonstrates sinfulness of the heart. See, the problem with anger is that it leads to contempt for another human being. It leads to contempt for another human being. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.22. Look at Matthew 5.22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Again, that's pretty strong language, but what he's saying to us, look, when you get to a point where you're angry 
with, with somebody so angry that you, you call them raka, which means, uh, you know, uh, the word raka means empty. You're a nothing. You're a nobody. Or you call somebody a fool, then you're in danger of the fire of hell. And by the way, I, I, I do want to mention here that a, a question that maybe some of you are are thinking about uh, a, a thought you might be having is you might be thinking well Jesus was angry Jesus became angry so what's the difference well there there is a difference that's a good question but there is a difference let's look at some examples of uh, Jesus's anger in the book of Mark we read a story in Mark chapter 3 we read a story of, of a man who was in in the temple with a withered hand and it was the Sabbath and Jesus had been teaching while the scribes and Pharisees were kind of watching him from the corner, trying to de decide, you know, how they were going to address what he was doing. They didn't like him. They were looking for a way to bring him down. So somebody brought uh, this man with a withered hand to Jesus. And so the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees were waiting to see if Jesus would heal him. And then they could attack him. Because he would be working, you know, to heal somebody would be working on the Sabbath. So they brought him up. And of course, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he asked them, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or should we ignore it? And the Bible says that nobody said a word. It was silence, total silence. So then in Mark 3, 5, we read that Jesus looked around at them in anger. He looked at them angrily and he was distressed at their stubborn hearts. He was distressed by their lack of compassion as they were more focused in following a system that didn't allow them to show compassion to a person in need that was right in front of them. And I, I believe Jesus became angry at them because of his love for this man who needed a miracle. See, when Jesus becomes angry, it's not because of hatred. It's not because of contempt, the way that we often become, the reason we often become angry. But he became angry because of his, because of his love for people in need that were being ignored by people who could have helped them some way, somehow. But they were too concerned about the system. At other times, Jesus got angry. Uh, it's when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Remember this? When he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. I think Jesus was angry again at, at, the, at the system that exploited people. The temple was supposed to be a place where they could find forgiveness. They could find peace. But instead, they were taking advantage of the, of the men and women who were coming uh, to the temple to find forgiveness, to find peace. They were extorting money. And so Jesus went in there because of his love for the people that were being exploited. He took action. He was angry. So again, his anger is not at all like our angers. Nor do I think that Jesus means here that that every time we're angry, it's always a sin. I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, uh, uh, Paul expands on this when he, he says, uh, Be angry, but do not sin. And, and do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And so, what is this anger that we're talking about? Well, Jesus explains it as he piles on these examples of, of the danger of anger. Because uh, 
Anger causes us, as we just read, to be subject to judgment, to be answerable to the court. He may have been talking about the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and, and here's something else. He says that it, it causes us to be in danger of the fire of hell. And so that leads me to another problem with anger, is that it endangers our souls. Anger endangers your soul. Contempt for somebody else endangers your soul. It threatens to cut you off from God. Now you might think, well, that's, wow, that's a lot. That's like, it, it, like it, it just seems like the consequences of anger are not compatible with the sin of anger. That's, you know, God's going way overboard if he says that just because I'm angry with somebody. Of course, he's talking about human anger, right? Contempt, hatred. That just because I'm angry, that means that my soul is in danger of being cut off from God. That's overboard. No, not really. Not when you think of what Jesus is teaching here. And I think what Jesus is teaching here, first of all, is this. I think he's teaching that we must be committed to God's view of people. We must be committed to God's view of people. All people. People who are like us and people who are different than we are. People who believe like us and people who don't believe like we do. People who maybe mock the way that we believe. People who celebrate uh, the way we celebrate and people who celebrate much differently. People who vote like we do and people who don't vote like we do. They are all His special creation. People are God's special creation. You've never met anyone in your entire life who does not bear the image of God within them. You've never met anyone who doesn't bear God's image in them. And so God's love for them compels us to see with compassion even those who reject God. A lot of times we're repelled by their sin rather than to be compelled by God's love. We're repelled by the sin of people who have rejected God instead of being compelled by His love. And Paul teaches us that we be compelled by God's love. This is why we should not have contempt and hatred for others. So Jesus uses this Aramaic word raka, and I mentioned that the, the word raka literally means empty or empty-headed. He uses the word fool. The word fool means uh, idiot. Uh, it literally means to have no moral value. When my wife and I were living in Corpus Christi many years ago now, in the, the early to mid-80s, we had a friend in, in Corpus Christi in our church. He was a young man, uh, younger than us. He was still single back then. Uh, I think he was in college. And uh, he, his name was Isidro. Isidro. And uh, he was a great guy. He was in the college and career class that I, that I taught back then. But I remember he told me one time that his friends had a nickname for him. They called him Zero. I remember thinking, what an awful nickname. He was a great, great guy. He and I went out to play tennis one time and just real mild-mannered, uh, great guy. And I thought, what an awful nickname uh, to be called Zero because that's literally what Raka means. Raka means Zero. 
empty, nothingness, empty-headed. So when you call somebody empty-headed, like, you're, now what's up there, you know, you have nothing up there. The lights are on, but nobody's home, you know, we like to make that joke at other people's expense, you know, but Jesus was saying, that's what, when you call somebody that, when you call somebody that, then you're, you're in danger of hellfire. To call someone a fool means that you don't think they have any moral value. Like, you have nothing to offer my life here. Come on. You're not adding value to anybody here. You may as well not even exist because you have no value. You, you're not offering any value. To call somebody a fool, to call somebody an idiot. And I believe this breaks God's heart. We've got to learn to see people the way that God sees them. We must be committed to God's view of people because they are His special creation. So Jesus continues in verse 23, Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave, leave your gift, rather, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So, not only does God want us to be committed to God's view of people, but I believe He also wants us to be committed to reconciliation. We must be committed to reconciliation. Life is made up of relationships, right? Life is made up of relationships. And how many of you know that in relationships, whether they're family relationships, friends, there will be disagreements. It's going to happen among even your family, among even your closest friends. There will be broken relationships. There's going to be a need for reconciliation sometime. You're not going to get through your life, certainly as an adult, but even in school. I mean, I see students in school who, uh, you know, the, you got two girls that are best friends, and then suddenly a few months later they're not talking to each other. What happened? I thought you were best friends. Well, And we think, oh, those, those middle school kids or those high school kids. You know, it happens to adults as well. It happens to us as well. There's going to be a need, a need for reconciliation. Now, we can ignore that need. We can respond in pride, and it's pride that would say, I don't need to be reconciled. I don't need to make things right between me and whatever, whoever the other person might be. Or we can humble ourselves and seek reconciliation. What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do, rather? Jesus wants us to be reconciled. Jesus wants us to be reconciled. This is why he, he's, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, first, go and be reconciled and then come back and offer your gift. So he's saying, look, take care of being reconciled before you approach God with your worship. Before you approach God with your gift. First, reconcile yourself and then worship God and then approach God with your worship. You know, when I've read this part, this verse in the past, I used to imagine, uh, I don't know, in my mind, I, I would imagine this scene, you know, taking place in our contemporary society. I would imagine somebody coming to the altar, 
or coming before God uh, with maybe a financial gift, an offering, an offering to God, and then realize, okay, I need to make things right, so I'll, I'll leave my offering here. I'm not going to put it in you know, the offering plate or the basket, whatever the case might be. I'm going to go take care of this situation and then come back once there's reconciliation and put the offering in or something like that. You know, but that's not the picture. That's not the picture at all. What is a picture is this. Picture a long line of men at the temple. And they're all, they've all come from different parts, most of them from Galilee, which would have been as far as 80 miles away. And they've all come with an animal to be sacrificed. In some cases, they would have bought the animal there at the temple. But there are many men there. They've all come with their families and they're waiting their turn. There's this long line going into the, the temple. And so they're waiting the turn. It could, have, it could have taken all day, maybe even more than one day. And so finally, you know, they're taking their turns. And one man, one man has been waiting for hours and hours, maybe even days. And he finally approaches the place where he's to make his sacrifice, offer his sacrifice. And upon... Arriving there, he remembers that someone has something against him. In other words, he's the one who may have committed the wrong. Somebody has something against them. And it's possible they do because he's the one who committed the wrong. So then he decides, I need to, because this is what Jesus is teaching, right? Here's a scenario he's presenting. He says, I need to go reconcile with this person and make things right. Now, in, in my mind, you know, when I used to imagine this scenario, he would leave his offering there and go outside, go to the neighborhood, find his friend or whomever, and be reconciled and come back. But that's not at all what would happen. He would have to tie up his animal, maybe tie up its legs, and leave it there and go back home, maybe 80 miles. Go back home and seek out this person with with whom he needed to be reconciled and then come back another 80 miles. So it wasn't going to happen easily. It wasn't going to happen quickly. There was going to be effort involved there. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. But Jesus is saying, you've got to do, it, do this because otherwise unreconciled anger endangers your soul. And so I think this is a, a challenge for us because... To be reconciled with somebody is a lot of work on our behalf. Sometimes we don't want to do it. I heard a preacher one time call this, a, you know, that you got to go through the tunnel of chaos if you want to get to the other side. And boy, sometimes reconciling seems like chaos. You bring things up on the, on the table like, okay, I, I did this and I'm sorry and I don't even want to think about it. And, and you don't want to deal with it. And you don't even know if the other person wants to talk about it. And so... It's so much easier. It's so much easier to say, God, I'm, God, you know my heart. I'm just going to worship you anyway because you know my heart. It so, would be so much easier for, uh, for this Jewish man to say, God, really? You want me to leave my animal here, go back, take my family with me, or have them wait here and go back 80 miles and then come back? That's too much work. I, I'll just offer the sacrifice. I'll just worship you, God. It's just too much work. It's uh, so much emotional Things that we, you know, we got to deal with. and It's a lot easier to continue offering our gift to God. In our case, it's not an animal sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of praise. And we want to offer it to God, and God wants to receive it. But He says, no, first, go be reconciled. 
and then come offer your sacrifice of praise. Because without reconciliation, the gifts that we present to God have no meaning. Our worship has no meaning. Sometimes we think that God has to receive our worship. He doesn't have to receive our worship. Cain and Abel both brought him worship through their offerings, and he received Abel's but rejected Cain's. He doesn't have to receive our worship. So I think we've got to be careful that we don't make this mistake. Don't make the mistake of substituting worship for reconciliation. This is our temptation. This is, we see this as our way out. Okay, I don't want to deal with this. Lord, I'm just going to worship you. As long as things are right between you and me, God says, no, I want you to be right with the people around you. Don't make the mistake of substituting worship for reconciliation. Then Jesus gives us another example of why we should seek reconciliation. Verse 25, he says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who was taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You know, in Jesus' day, a person who didn't pay his debts could be thrown into a debtor's prison until the amount was paid for. But, I mean, you see the problem, right? If somebody owed money, wasn't paying his debt, he'd be thrown into debtor's prison until he paid off that debt. How is he going to pay off the debt if he's in prison? So then he had to rely on his family and his wife and children and other, perhaps other family members who were willing uh, to, to sacrifice. You'd be sacrificed to work, to make money, to get their loved one out of prison. And so Jesus is saying, settle matters quickly. Right? He, first he used the example of, of you know, settling matters in, in the temple as part of our worship before our worship. Now he's talking about... Uh, going to court and he says take care of it before you actually get to court take care of it quickly and i think simply what jesus is stressing here is the urgency of what we must do in being reconciled the urgency of personal reconciliation because the more we wait and all of you know this the more we wait the harder it becomes to be reconciled the harder it becomes to be reconciled and jesus is saying look do it before you get to court because there's a judgment looming. There's a judgment looming. Justice is going to be done. One way or another, judgment is going to be done. God's way always prevails. So before the judgment arrives, before you get to court, then take care of the reconciliation. Don't, don't be angry with your brother or with your sister. And, and what we see in both of these examples that it gives us is just... Personal animosity. We need, to, we need to abandon anger. We need to abandon any kind of personal animosity. And, and let me just finish with this. Look, reconciliation. Reconciliation is what the gospel is about. We are reconciled with God through what Jesus did. And then God calls us to tell others, be reconciled with God. 
We read this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is what we are called to do. To implore people that have rejected God, to implore people who, who have... Uh, who have turned away from God to, to implore with them, be reconciled to God. God loves you. God sent His Son. Be reconciled to Him. That's our job. That's our ministry. And how many of you know that it's much easier to invite others to be reconciled to God when we're regularly seeking to stay reconciled with each other? And how much harder it is to invite others to be reconciled to God when we refuse to be reconciled with each other. So what I'd like for us to do today is simply let's start with examining our hearts. Examine your heart today. This act of examining our hearts, I think it's implied in the example that Jesus gave about leaving our gift at the altar and making the necessary effort to seek reconciliation. Because getting back to his example, how is it that this man, this this man in Jesus' example got to the altar and then remembered. He remembered that there's somebody who had something against him. I think possibly, you know, the implication for me anyway is, or my inference, is that the, the sacrifice that he was bringing was probably a sin offering. Because that's what a faithful Jew would do. They would offer an atonement for their sins. So it's probably a sin offering. And as I reflected on the sin, as he reflected all this time of waiting, as he reflected on the sin offering and, and why he was bringing this sin offering, reflected on his own sin, his own guilt, his own need for forgiveness, it was perhaps this time of reflection that caused him to remember that there was someone who had something against him. And I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to reflect. We've got to reflect when, when we sing songs of, of God's goodness and what Jesus has done on the cross for us. This, this gives us an opportunity to, to reflect on our sinfulness and how it should have been us on that cross. And we've been forgiven and as we reflect on our own guilt and our need for forgiveness from God, perhaps, perhaps that'll stir in our hearts and in our minds the remembrance that, yeah, there's this tension I caused this tension. Or maybe I didn't cause this tension, but there's a tension there. So I'd like for us today to just spend some time examining our hearts, reflecting. And make this a, a regular thing. A time of reflecting, a time of examining our hearts. And then asking God to help us. It's not easy, I know, to seek reconciliation. We put it off. We ignore it because of how difficult it is. But we must take the words of Jesus and the warning of Jesus seriously. Seriously. Because this is what he calls us to do. Be committed to God's view of people. And be committed to reconciliation. I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father... We're so thankful for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's because of what he did that we reconciled to you. 
And you loved us before we loved you. You loved us while we were yet sinners. You loved us. And so we're thankful. And God, I, I, I thank you that we're able to have fellowship, not just with you, but with each other. Because we're called to be a part of a body. We're called to be a part of a church. And it doesn't mean that relationships will always be perfect. It doesn't even mean that they'll always be good. But they should always be reconciled. And maybe, God, we, maybe we have an example in our own lives of people that we don't really agree with, but we, we manage to stay reconciled. We don't hate them, and we're patient with them, and they're patient with us. Relationships don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be reconciled. They don't even have to be good. It's better if they're good, but they'll never become good unless they're first reconciled. And so today, Father, help us to understand, before we come to the altar with worship, we want to approach the altar asking for forgiveness. Before we come to offer our sacrifice of praise, we want to approach your altar today just to say, Lord, forgive me. And Lord, help me to take the next step. The difficult step, the difficult path of going through that tunnel of chaos to arrive at the other side of reconciliation. Help us to do that today, Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name.